This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, where we are today, and we will be one more Sunday next week. We'll be there again. I hope you'll be back next week, because next week we're going to go back before the verses that we are in today, and we're going to look at what God's Word says about what His will is for you in 2019. How many of us wonder, wonder what God has has planned for me next year? Wonder what God's will is for me in the new year? Well, He tells us, and we're going to look at that next Sunday, so I hope you'll be here at 9 and 11. It would be safe to say that all of us who have been fortunate enough Sometimes, some, at some time in our lives, and that's probably, I'm, I'm going to guess, that's probably most, if not all of us here today. At some time in your life, you've been fortunate enough to hear the gospel. And most, if not all of us, have responded to it in faith, uh, in Jesus. Those of us who have had that opportunity to hear the gospel and believe it, we have, I think, we as Christians have greater reason to celebrate Christmas than anyone else. I mean, it is, if we can say it this way, it's our holiday, right? And we can say to the rest of the world, welcome to it. But he belongs to those who know Jesus Christ. It's not that we're better. We're not better than anybody else. It's not that we're smarter. Look at the person next to you and just go, ain't you. It's not that we're smarter (laughs) than anyone else. It's just the fact that we know the one who was born in Bethlehem and that relationship with him makes all the difference. Yet we live in a society where the truth of Christ and why he came are, you know, and I've been around now, this is my 63rd Christmas. (laughs) Amen, Kathy? Yeah, she's right there with me. And, and I've noticed, especially as I've become an adult, and especially in the last maybe a couple decades, I've noticed we live in, in a society where the truth of Christ and why he came, are year by year, that knowledge is, is being eroded. That knowledge is becoming less and less known by most, especially, frankly, by younger people. I read an interesting article this past week about the status of Christianity in our culture and, and why, for example... And, and this, is, this is true across the board, across this nation. Why church attendance is down from what it was just a few years ago. And the research that they did showed that it's not that churches necessarily are dwindling in their membership. They're really not. But that the members, here's what they found, the members aren't showing up on Sundays like they used to. Used to be, not too many years ago, that People that belong to the church, I mean, if they were regular and, and they said, yeah, that's my church and I'm excited about my life in Jesus and so forth, they were in church every Sunday. Now the, the average has gotten down to almost one time per month in many places. And that has a rippling effect, not only on the church, but also on those we're called to reach. Let me share some things that article said. I'm just going to read some things to you. That w- and I want you to Listen. So while it can be argued that the older generations, that would include my generation, all right? The older generations might have been 
quote, overchurched. Uh, my family, once my parents became Christians, when I was 10 years old or so, we were in church every time the doors were open. I mean, every time. Whether we wanted to be as kids or not, we were there. You know what I mean? Kicking and screaming, if you will. And, and some might say that the older generations were overchurched. The reality today is that some people have, quote, never stepped foot in a church, except for maybe a wedding or a funeral or something. Many people in the current generation don't have the church experience that previous generations were exposed to. And as a result, quote, their view of Christianity is what they have seen. Listen, where do they get their understanding of Christianity from? They're, from where? From pop culture, right, which would include TV and a whole lot of other things. Their view of Christianity is what they've seen in pop culture and what we are seeing even more so is that it's derived from social media and, quote, their whole perception of Christianity is not about the gospel or Jesus or any of that. Now, that, I understand that. I get that. I, I think they're, they're hitting the nail on the head. So I'm thinking it stands to reason that it's repulsive to non-believers that what's supposed to be Christianity is mostly these days commercial. And they don't see the connection. The world that doesn't know Christ. They really don't see the connection between Christ and Black Friday. But yet it's portrayed as the biggest day to go what kind of shopping? Christmas shopping. They don't see the connection. And that's because there is no connection between Christ and Black Friday. But for some in this world, for many, I would argue, that's their only perception. That's the only thing they know about Christianity is what they see on the TV commercials, what they see on Black Friday and so forth. Unlike previous generations, the article goes on to say, Unlike previous generations, young people, quote, have very much an a la carte approach to spirituality, meaning that they want to pick and choose what strands of their spirituality are important to them. One person they interviewed said, even if they hear a preacher say, Scripture has to be the ultimate authority in their lives. You ever hear anything like that here? Even if they hear a preacher say that, there's always going to be an asterisk next to that. And they will turn to, listen to this term, because it's very popular these days, they will turn to their own truth if they hear something they disagree with. For many young people, there is no real truth that lies outside of their own personal experiences, biases, and assumptions. So the self becomes the arbitrator of personal truth. Personal truth becomes greater than absolute truth. I found this statement, this is up on the screen for you. Young people were found to be one of the chief drivers of the rising non-religious demographic. With 33%, that's a third of those aged 21 to 29, stating that they follow no religion. Third in our country. Jay Warner Wallace, a cold case detective. He's a law enforcement detective. But he's also, also, also an author and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Did some investigation, and he chronicled more than 50 similar surveys back in January this year. 
and concluded, quote, fewer people claim a Christian affiliation than ever before, and those who claim no religious affiliation are the fastest growing group in America. Researcher George Barna of the American Culture of Faith uh, Culture and Faith Institute noted following a survey of 9,273 American adults in November 2017, just a little over a year ago, which found that only 31% of adults identify as born-again Christians, and that he, he said that faith is undergoing a substantial challenge, and he said the church at large is not likely to grow in the future unless some fundamental changes in practice are made. Another quote, up on the screen for you. The survey found that people are most likely to accept Christ as Savior before they finish high school. With two out of three of every three individuals who say they're born again, revealing that they made the choice before the age of 18. That underscores, church, the importance of our kids and youth ministries here at this church, doesn't it? All right? Most people, let me, let me just do a quick poll in this room. How many of you trusted Christ as your Savior before the age of 18? My hand is up. Look around. Just hold your hands up. Look around. That's by far, by far, most of us in this room. Here's another. We did this the first Sunday. Here's a different video, but here's another man on the street video asking, who is Jesus? All right? Let's watch. Lots of opinions there, aren't there? Lots of opinions. And so many young people, and I would dare say so many of those young people, where do they get those opinions? And let, let me just tell you where a lot of them came from. From their freshman year of college, sitting in a philosophy class, listening to somebody who does not know God, say, well, here's who Jesus is. We need to do more, church, I think, to reach our young people. We need to do everything that we possibly can. Lots of opinions. And, that, and here's the... Here's the Here's the thing I want us to understand. So many, especially young people today, equate their opinions with truth because in today's culture, you get to determine your own truth. And that's okay. And that makes every opinion, in their way of thinking, that makes every opinion equally valid. That makes every religion equally the same. They're all, this, you know, you, you heard Jesus, no, he's no different. Gandhi was like Jesus and all the rest. That's today's world. The problem is with that kind of thinking that it comes in conflict with the Bible, which says there is absolute truth. Jesus said very simply, and this is what is repulsive to so much thinking today. Jesus said, here's the deal. I am the truth. He was very exclusive. Nobody else. I am the truth. There is absolutely absolute truth. The Bible teaches us that there is right and there is wrong, and getting it right makes all the difference in our lives and in our futures and our eternity. Did you hear that? Getting it right makes all the difference in eternity. So here's how the Bible wraps up this conversation that we've been in in Colossians chapter 1, about who Jesus is. Our culture, by the way, is not a whole lot different from the culture that Paul evangelized back in the first century in Asia Minor and Greece 2,000 years ago. In, in the, this church in the city of Colossae, doctrines were coming into the church and philosophies were popping up that watered down who Christ is. And Christians were buying into these teachings. 
So Paul in his letter wants to let them know, here's who Jesus is. And he wants them to hold on tightly to these truths. So if you can imagine Paul's description here in Colossians 1 as a funnel. I'm going to read it again. Verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. He is the image, talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So if you kind of imagine these verses beginning there in verse 15, it's kind of like a funnel. And you know how a funnel is real wide at the top and comes down real narrow at the bottom. And that's what these verses do. He is the creator of all the universe. That's about as wide as it gets, isn't it? But then he's going to bring it all the way down in these last couple verses that we're going to look at intently today. It comes all the way down to you and me. All right? So I want you to, to listen as we talk about these things. And then we're going to make some applications from this truth in the scripture to these people that we listen to up on the screen and people that you and I know. Number one, Jesus is completely God. Verse 19, he's completely God. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That means this, Jesus and God, how do they relate? Jesus is not less, he's not more. He and God are the same, completely the same. Completely God. The Gnostics, one of those doctrines that was coming into the Colossian church, taught that Jesus was less than God the Father. And some try to envision Jesus as, as God Jr. They see him that way. Or as, you know, that Jesus is the JV and God the Father is the varsity. Something like that. You know what I mean? Mormonism teaches that he is a created being. And this very clearly says, no, he is the creator. No one created Jesus. We believe here in Nagshead Church that God is a trinity, that God is three equally divine personalities in one person, in one God. The word fullness that he says there, all God's fullness, God was pleased to have all his fullness. The word fullness is a Greek word that means completeness. All of God's completeness was found in Jesus. When the angel said to Joseph, he's going to come to earth, Mary's going to have a son, you'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He wasn't saying a little bit of God, a portion of God, a third of God, God Jr. He was saying God. All of God is going to be wrapped up in that baby. He will become a man. The NCV, the New Century Version, translates that verse. God was pleased for all of himself to live in Christ. Amazing. All of God. All of the Trinity, including God's attributes, his characteristics, his nature, and his being, indwells the Son. And the word there says he was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him. The word dwell means to have a permanent dwelling. It means 
unlike what some might teach, God did not enter this man Jesus and he become God somehow at his baptism. Remember his baptism? He's baptized and several things happen. John dunks him in the Jordan River and he comes up and there a dove in the comes down, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes upon him and a voice from heaven booms and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And some say that's when he became God at his baptism. Not so. Paul says, no, no, no. He was before all things and all the fullness of God dwelled in him. God didn't enter him at his baptism. And then some of those same folks would say, he entered him at his baptism and he left him at the cross. Because the big question is, how does God become sin? Because the Bible says on the cross, he became our sin. The Bible says on the cross, he called out to his father and says, you've abandoned me. Why have you forsaken me? That's hard for people to grasp in their minds. Did he, not, did he cease being God there? And the absolute truth is no. He did not. He was fully God and fully man, and there's never been anyone like him, not Gandhi, not Muhammad, not Buddha. No one. God was pleased, it says, and that means God chose it to be that way. And this verse makes it very clear that Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, was so not because he, he was God, not because he simply claimed to be God, but because this was God's plan all along. This was God's choice. This is how we're going to redeem mankind. And what an amazing God that we have that he knew. He knew. When did he know? I don't know, but I'm okay with that. He knew we would be in rebellion against him. And yet, he not only created us anyway, but he did so knowing he would have to come and pay for our sin. Please don't think in your mind that when Adam and Eve, when Eve took that fruit and gave it to Adam and they ate of it, God went, well, I never. Yeah, he did. He knew. And he knew that, and he's, he's, he, they, they came up with this plan that Jesus, the Son, would come to this earth to die and pay for our sin. And that's why we speak of amazing grace. It kind of blows our minds. How? how? We don't understand that. We wonder how he could love me, as the song says, a sinner condemned unclean. Some cults teach that Jesus became God when he came to earth, and he became human when he came to earth. But the Bible tells us here very plainly, he was always God. Number two, Paul tells us here that he alone, Jesus alone, can reconcile us to God. Jesus is key to any man, any woman, any young person on this earth having a relationship with God Almighty, having eternal life. The key is Jesus. Paul says he alone can reconcile us. He says in verse 20, his shed blood made peace between us and God. If you drop down to verse 22, it says, But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. One of our favorite Christmas passages, and uh, and you'll probably, I hope you do in your 
household and your family, uh, and if you're alone, however Christmas works out for you tomorrow, that you'll spend some time in Luke chapter 2, the physician Luke's retelling of the birth of Christ contains these words that the angels, you know, the angels in the story came and found the shepherds out in their field. And they said the message was glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to people he favors. And we read those words, I don't know if you do, but you know, you read those words, especially maybe the first time you ever heard them or maybe as you begin to think on them a little bit, you read those words every year and wonder, when is that peace on earth going to happen? It's not happening right now. When is that peace on earth going to take place? It's been 2,000 years. And I would dare say for most of those 2,000 years, uh, there have been wars and conflicts on this earth, have there not? I mean, there have been my, just about my entire life. During his ministry, Jesus proclaimed this peace. It was something he promised his followers. John chapter 14, verse 27. Will you read that with me? Let's read that verse together aloud. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. I give you my peace, he said. John 16, 33. Read that one with me. This is part of the verse. Read it with me again. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Let me ask you a question. You read those verses aloud. Where is that peace found? Where? In Christ. Jesus proclaimed it. Paul explained it. This verse that was promised on a hillside outside of Bethlehem by the angels to the shepherds there in Luke was made possible. How did that truth, how was that made possible? How did that become real? On the hillside outside Bethlehem, the angels told the shepherds, but it was made possible on the hillside outside of Jerusalem 33 years later on the cross. And there, Paul says, by the shedding of his blood, as he died to pay our sin debt, the debt you and I owed to God, Jesus made it possible for us to have peace with God. And that peace is when we are brought into a relationship with God, when we are, you understand the word probably, especially if you've ever been in divorce court, you understand the word reconciled, with irreconcilable differences. Meaning there's no way I'm getting back with him or her. No way, we're coming back together. Jesus made peace between you and me and God Almighty. The Bible tells us we were his enemies because of our sin, our rebellion. We're reconciled to him when we believe that Jesus is our Savior by what, and that's accomplished by what he did on the cross. To have things change so that I am at peace with someone means I must have been his enemy. I can't be at change and, and come at peace with somebody unless there's been a, a rift a conflict, a disagreement, whatever it might be. There must have been some reason for conflict between us. Well, guess what becomes? You're a bright group. I'm looking at you and I can tell, as far as I can tell, everybody's eyes are open. What becomes, what is it that comes between us and God? What's the reason for conflict? One little three-letter word, tell me. Sin. It's our sin. And everyone, universally, there's that funnel again, 
Everyone universally has this problem with God. So by believing in Christ, which is receiving him as Savior, you and I are brought into a right relationship with Almighty God. There's no further step. It's not, well, Jesus gets me closer to God. That's what the Gnostics, the cult taught. When you accept Jesus, you have accepted the entire Godhead. You have accepted Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit, whether you knew that or not. But the Father becomes your heavenly Father. The Holy Spirit indwells you the moment you put your faith in Christ. There's just one step, and that's believe. And, and here at Nags Head Church, we, we as a church believe all this to be true about Jesus. He is God. He is eternal. He loves us so much that he came to bring us back to God by shedding his blood, by dying on the cross for mankind. We believe that here. These few verses simply summarize what the Bible says about Jesus. And here's why, let me wrap up with some thoughts here. Here's why it's so necessary for not just us in this room, and most of us have this right, but the people in that video, our neighbors, the folks we work with, maybe some of our family members, here's why it's so necessary to get Jesus right. And here's God's purpose for sending him. God wants us to know him. God wants you and I to know him. He's wanted us to know him. How long has God wanted that? He's wanted us to know him since from the time of Adam and Eve in the garden. That's been a long time. And it's been his passion, it's been the Father's passion, the Son's passion, the Spirit's passion for us to get to know him ever since God wants us to know him. And why is that? Second point is this, why is this so necessary? Because it's only by knowing him that we can give him glory. Only by knowing him can we glorify God. And church, listen to me, that is our ultimate purpose as mankind, as human beings. That's our ultimate purpose is for our lives, for God's creation, to glorify God. What did the angels say to the shepherds? Glory to God. Isn't that what they said? Glory to God. This brings God's, God glory. This is going to open the possibility for all of humanity to glorify God. That's it. And there is some truth and I believe it, there is some truth to, the, to what we, we think so much about these days in, in more modern times and Christianity and our songs and so forth. There is some truth that Jesus came for you and for me. I believe that. And I've heard it taught, well, if you were the only person who ever lived, the only one who ever committed sin, Jesus would have come and died for you. Okay, I can get that. Of course he did but there's a bigger picture. The bigger picture is that Jesus came to transform us from being all about ourselves to being all about him. Can I say that again? Boy, if there's one lesson I need to learn and probably all of us need to learn, Jesus Christ came to die so that he could transform us from being all about me to all about him. From being all about ourselves all about him. That's why if you want to see some of the greatest sinners in all the world, 
Some, where would you find them? Someone said, well, you go to the prisons and you go to the, to the place of maximum security and you go to death row and places like that. I say, no, you go to the nursery and look at a two-year-old. Because what's a two-year-old's biggest desire in life? Make me happy. Give me what I want. Am I, am I saying it right? Yeah. And are they, are they, are they sinners? Yes, they are. <laughs> I was when I was two. To transform us. It's not about me, it's about him. There's a, that's a challenge. You parents of, of young children right now, have small kids in the home, that's a challenge for us, for you, to teach our children at Christmas time, isn't it? You know, because everything about Christmas in the secular vein is about what do you want? What can I get you that will please you? What can I get you that once on Christmas morning when you open that present or you come down and see that stuff under the tree, what can I do to make you happy? And we, and we what are you saying we shouldn't do that, Rick? Well, if you don't do that, shame on you. <laughs> getting presents, but frankly, the challenge is to teach our children when they're young this truth that it's not about us. How many times have we heard or maybe even said, I've heard this already this Christmas season, and you have too, Christmas is all about the children. You ever heard that? <laughs> have you ever said it? And then we reinforce that by going into hock to make sure they have the best Christmas ever when they open the presents. But Christmas, and I'm not saying, please don't get me wrong. Please don't say, well, Rick said don't give many presents. So kids, you get to see them Tuesday morning, but they're going back to the store Wednesday morning. Good night. Come talk to me if that's what you're going to do. I want to stop you from disaster. But it isn't about them. It isn't about you. It isn't about me. Christmas is about Christ, isn't it? We've got to keep that first and foremost. Why, why is it so important, third point, that we get this? It's because we have to understand Christ to have a passion for those who don't know him. Before we can ever care about people that don't know him, we need to understand him. We have to have an understanding of Jesus and who he is and why he came to have a passion for those other folks, those folks that don't yet know him, whether it be your husband your children, your neighbors, your friends. The Creator wants our friends, our neighbors, our spouses, our children, our classmates. He wants them to know who He is so that they can make the choice, have the opportunity to make the choice to accept Him. Most of those who reject Jesus, and I would dare say, if I could go back and find all those people in that video who answered incorrectly, let's, can we say it that way, who did not get the full understanding of Jesus, if I could go back and sit down with them and say, can I have five minutes of your time and explain to them in five minutes the gospel. Here's, here's who Jesus is. This is why he came. He came to die and so forth and so on. Explain the gospel to them. And I asked those folks, has anyone ever explained that to you? Most, if not all of them would say, no, I've never heard that before. I've heard this, and I've heard that, and I've, heard, and I've observed people that claim to be Christians, but no one's ever told me that before. 
my son-in-law, you've heard his testimony, Ramon, um, when he came to my house to sit down with me and ask me for my permission for him to date my daughter, not to marry her, but to date her. That was the rule in our household. He came trembling <laughs> with great fear. And then same thing with Terry. Terry stood outside the door. He said for 10 minutes and he thought he was going to throw up. But <laughs> dads, I can teach you how to have that kind of intimidation on these, on these suitors. When he came to ask me, he came to my home, and he shared this before with our church, but he, he came and we sat down, and, uh, and I said, well, Ramon, you know, the, the most important thing in our family is our faith. And I just launched into the gospel and told him Jesus, and I said, here's who Jesus is, and here's what Jesus came to do. Told him how salvation was provided on the cross for us. If we would simply believe, and I said to this young man, who at the time was probably, what were you, Ramon, 20? 20 years old, I said, have you ever heard that before? Now, he's been to church before in his life. Some Protestant, some Catholic, but he had been to church, and I said, have you ever heard that before? And he looked at me with all honesty, and he said, no. No one's ever told that to me before. So he would have been up there on that video answering and not giving a very good answer prior to that moment. But at that very moment, he said, but I want Jesus as my Savior. Most of these folks have never heard. They've never been told. They've been told things about Jesus that aren't true. They've watched the witness of professing Christians whose lives contradict who Jesus is. Listen, I'm a Christian today. And those of you who are Christians as well, Here's just the nitty-gritty of it. I'm a Christian today because someone took the time to care about me and tell me the truth about Jesus. And that's the message about Christ that needs to be heard and needs to be seen by those who don't get him. It does no good for us to watch stuff like that video and then shake our heads because shaking our heads is not the answer. They don't get him for the most part because they probably either don't know any real Christians or if they do, those Christians are keeping Christ to themselves. Who has not only the greatest joy at Christmas, but at the same time the greatest responsibility to make him known by our words and our actions than us. We do. We can't hide him in a manger. We have to display him, crucified, risen from the grave to those God has placed in our lives. When I say display him, I don't mean put up a cross in your front yard with Jesus on it. I mean live like Jesus in your life. We don't need to do what some want to do by condemning Santa Claus and Christmas trees. Well, we should, oh, that's all stuff is all pagan and even though. I like some of the fun stuff at Christmas, don't you? Yeah, I've got Christmas trees all over me. Some tell me I look like that guy, too. Be nice. But, I mean, that's not, we don't need to go to that extreme. 
But we do, listen to me, we do need to make sure that in our lives, in our own families, in our own churches, and in our own relationships, we make Christ the star of the holiday. One of my favorite Christmas verses in the Bible is found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and it's a good verse to hide away in your heart. It's a good verse to memorize. And it's sort of tucked away at the end of a passage, and in that passage... In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is teaching the Corinthian church about the importance of their generosity and giving financially to support the ministry. And he's talking about all those things. And then it's kind of like the Holy Spirit puts this in his mind. Yeah, add this to that. And at the very end of the chapter, he says, yeah, our generosity and giving to support the ministry is just like God's generosity to us in giving his son. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Read that with me. Read it together with me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's talking about Christ and salvation. Indescribable. Let me challenge you to do all you can to describe the indescribable. In your words, in your actions, with your neighbors, with your friends who may not have ever heard a real genuine description of Christ, who may not have ever seen a real genuine description, and they're looking, they're watching. Listen to me. And many of them are hoping and wanting to find what Jesus offers. Bow with me in prayer, please. How many of us don't need to respond, but just answer this within the quietness of your own heart? How many of us know people like the people up on that video? Know people who really don't get Jesus. They don't get Christmas. How many of us know people that it's all, it's all about secular things? It's all about giving gifts and it's all about Santa and it's all about decorations and we know we know and that's for them that's all that it is and they're missing out on the main part we know people like that I do how will they ever know unless we demonstrate Jesus to them how will they ever know unless we tell them I hope that's what Christmas does for you and for me this year. Father, Heavenly Father, we're amazed that sometime back in eternity past, you, the Son, and the Spirit had a conference. And this plan was put into motion that would require your son to come to the earth to be born of a virgin. That had never been done before. To live a spotless, sinless life. That had never been done before. 
to demonstrate perfectly before all who watched him and all who heard him who you are, God. No one else could do that. And then to boldly proclaim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then the next day, to die on the cross, and then three days later, to rise from the dead, to ascend to the right hand of the Father in heaven, to one day come back and establish his kingdom. And we're told, as we read in the series, the verses, the words the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, and one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Help us, Father, who are here to realize it's so important to get this truth about Jesus because ultimately you want to know us and you, your desire for knowing us is that we might bring you glory. And by bringing you glory in our lives, people might come to know you, others. That's what Christmas is about. So I pray, Father, especially I pray for the parents and, and grandparents who are here that we would seek to do our very best job at teaching Jesus to our kids. Whether we bake him a birthday cake, whether we sing happy birthday to him, we read the Christmas story, we point out the story in a manger scene in our home, however we do that, Lord, that's age appropriate that we would make sure we underscore this is about Jesus first and foremost. Because, Father, we're looking now at a generation, a whole generation, two-thirds that don't know him, a third that claim no religion at all, that have no clue. And somehow we've dropped the ball, and I pray, God, that we'll pick it back up. These young parents will be the generation that changes that. That's our prayer. In his name I pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.